Chapter 15 of A Girl of High Adventure. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Veena Swaminathan. If ever there was a girl who was furious in her own mind, it was Matilda Reynes. She had enjoyed her life at Desmond Town. Little did she care for the rough and tumble-down old house. The food was good. The young old aunts were jolly of the jolly. Malachi and Bruce were great fun. Ah, no, however, Malachi was not great fun. She used to think he was, but she found out her mistake. For a man to sleep with one eye open like a cat, for a man deliberately to get her into a hole, for a man deliberately to betray her and force her to tell her horrible, mean little story. Oh no, she could not like Malachi anymore. She also dreaded the Desmond inexpressibly, but perhaps of all the happy Irish folks, the one she disliked most was that sweet, loving, forgiving La Petite Comtesse. How dare she be loving and forgiving? If she had fought her, Tilly would have known what to do. But she did not. She was only gentle and a little sad. In fact, very sad. And they all, every one of them, made such a fuss about her. And she was no real comtesse at all. She was nothing but a little stupid shop girl. How in the wide, wide world was Tilly ever to bear with her again? Mr. Flanagan sat very still by her side. She wished heartily that she might have travelled alone to Rosslare. She did not wish for Mr. Flanagan. He seemed to have no fun in him, and he looked from time to time with a sort of horror at Tilly. When they first got into the railway carriage, it was crowded, but by slow degrees the passengers got out. They were going, some in one direction, some in another, until at last Tilly and Mr. Flanningen found themselves alone. Then Mr. Flanningen turned his decidedly ungainly back upon Tilly, and having secured that day's copy of the York Constitution, began to read. He would do anything under the sun for the Desmonds, but he disliked this job with regard to Tilly. At last she could bear his silence and his gravity no longer. She sprang from her seat in the opposite corner and came and sat facing him. How soon shall we get to Rosslare? she asked. Mr. Flanningen very slowly dropped his newspaper, looked fixedly at Tilly and said in a song, very somber voice, I'm not telling ye, for I don't know. Oh, Mr. Flanagan, said Tilly, with a choking sound in her throat. Are you hating me as much as the others? I am not loving ye at the present moment, said Flanagan. He resumed his paper, reading it with such apparent zeal that Tilly might as well not exist. She felt more furious than ever. She began to sob. She sobbed very loud. 
Flanagan took no notice whatsoever of the noise she was making for some time, but when it became unbearable, he said, "For the Lord's sake, don't slobber, girl." What slobber? asked Tilly, who pretended not to be acquainted with the word, and who wanted at any cost to get Mister Flanagan into conversation, but the clergyman did not reply. He was buried again in his newspaper. Tilly's sob, which she thought so affecting, but which the old clergyman called slobber, grew fainter for lack of nutriment. By and by, they reached Rosslare, where a rather small boat was going to cross over to Fishcart. "You'll have a rough crossing, I'm thinking," said Flanagan. "The waves look dirty, to be sure. You'd best go and lie down." I'll see you to your cabin and then say goodbye. There's a return train which will take me back to Desmond Town in time for supper. Oh, Mr. Flanagan," sobbed Tilly, "you don't believe all the bad things of me. And why shouldn't I? There was the ten pins as large as life. Didn't I count them when the Desmond was telling E to be gone? But you do know. You must know, Mister Flanagan, that she is only a shopkeeper. She, I am not acquainted with your meaning. It's that horrid Margot," said Tilly. "Have I not bought hats from her and robes from her at Arles, and don't I know what she really and truly is like? Oh, do ye? I'm thinking ye don't." I'll be wishing ye a good day now, Miss Tilly, and don't thee try pins on horses again when there are cats about. It was a horrid, mean thing to do," said Tilly. "Anyone else would have called out, but he's too mean." Don't ye be running down Malachi," explained Flanagan. "Ye wanted to kill or injure the darling of the place." I'm thinking one of your stories is about as true as the other. Good day to ye now. I'm off. He gave a queer, awkward nod and disappeared up the companion and along the deck until he reached the gangway. Tilly thought herself quite the most miserable girl in all the world, but still she might have her revenge yet if she tried very, very. Very hard. If the testman did not believe in the story of the shop, at least Mister Comson just would. It would be her business to get things in train and make things very hard for the little Comtesse against her return to Arles. Tilly Raines had a horrible crossing. The boat was small. The sea was rough. She hated all physical discomforts. She cried to the stewardesses and begged of her to stay with her, assuring her that she was a very ill-used little girl and had no right to be going in that rickety old boat at all. "Well, you are in it," said the stewardess, "and if God is merciful, we may yet reach dry land." "What do you mean? What do you mean?" said Tilly, forgetting her terror and hatred of the Desmonds. In her nearer and possible terror of imminent death, 
what I see, replied the stewardess. We are like as not to see Davy Jones tonight. Whoever is Davy Jones? asked Tilly. He is the king of the bottom of the sea. They who sup with him sup once and never again. Now don't keep me, little girl. See, there's a poor lady like to faint in the far saloon from here. You are a bit of a coward, I take it, and I can't stay comforting cowards when there's real illness and real danger. Then Matilda, somehow or another, forgot her deadly seasickness and her hatred of the Desmonds and shook and trembled in her narrow berth. The wind was blowing great guns and the sailors were rushing here, there and everywhere. The captain's voice giving directions sounded to Tilly like great claps of thunder. She forgot about the pins and her fall from the horse. Gradually, as the sea grew rougher and the danger greater, she found herself looking in imagination at one sweet, dark, sad and yet smiling face. It was a face of the little shopkeeper, whom she had tried, yes, her very own best, to injure, perhaps to kill. Now she herself was face to face with death. It would be awful to go down into the depths of those wild and terrible waves. Everyone on board seemed uneasy. The little steamer swayed from side to side and rocked and shook itself as though it knew it was small and angry and powerless. Trills of terror ran through Tilly's frame. The captain's voice was heard to say, the dangerous time is when she could not catch the rest of the words. The stewardesses did not come near her. Woman laughed and cried and screamed. Tilly was all alone in her little cabin. She wondered how long she would take drowning. She could think of nothing but the horrors of death. Then all of a sudden, she made up her mind not to die in a hole. She would creep upstairs and be on deck. She had read stories of shipwrecks and when the worst came, boats were put out. The stewardess was a horrid woman and would not think of her. Well, she would think of herself. She would be one of the very first to leave the boat when the appalling hour of danger came. When they got to that that unpronounceable name which she could not catch. But it was all very well for Tilly to try and get out of her berth. She found she could not. The sea took her and threw her back into it. The sea tossed her against the side of her narrow berth. And she had to cling on with one hand to an extremely narrow rail and with the other to the top of the berth. The sea roared, the winds roared, showers of foam flung themselves against the pothole. The combined sound spoke of nothing but death, death, death. Never in all her life had she been so miserable before. Even the Desmond and Malachi were nothing to this anguish. She would sink to the bottom of the deep, 
deep sea, and no one would be very, very sorry. Why should they? Had she ever made anyone love her? Her father, had he not punished her and been cross to her all her days? Her stepmother, had she not been sly and told false things about Tilly? Well, they would not have any more trouble with her again. She would eat her last supper with Davy Jones. She felt confused, slightly raving. What sort of supper would he give her? Fishes, all sort of fishes. But then afterwards the big fishes would eat her and no one would lament unless perhaps, perhaps, Marco. But no, it was impossible to think that Marco would be sorry. Why should a shopkeeper girl be sorry? She, Margot, was only that, and nothing more at all. Although they did make such a fuss about her at Desmond Down, suddenly, in the midst of her meditations, there came a curious and remarkable lull. She no longer found it necessary to cling to either one side or other of the berth. It seemed as to someone she thought it was Margot, had poured oil on the disturbed waters. Might she? Could she? Would she be allowed to save even such a wicked girl as Tilly? Tilly acknowledged now that she was wicked and that Margot was good, and then all of a sudden the stewardesses bustled in. For the Lord's sake, get up, Missy, she said in a cheerful tone. I couldn't come near E with others so bad, but we are in harbour, thank the Lord, and all danger's over. Yes, we had a rough night, mighty rough. I've never gone through a worse, but I couldn't stay along of cowards. Here's your jacket, Missy. I'll slip it on E, and here's your hat. You do look bad, but we are very late in. And if you want to catch your train for London, eat best hurry up. Shall I get a porter for your luggage, Missy? Tilly answered a yes in a meek sort of voice. And then she gave the stewardesses, who had done nothing for her all night, a shilling out of her scanty store. Presently she was on dry land and in the train. She was not going to eat her supper with Davy Jones. She was going to live after all. She had passed through a fearful night, but she was going to live. Everything was new and fresh to her now. And when a boy brought her a cup of tea and a plate of bread and butter, she ate greedily and with appetite. Then it occurred to her that she ought to wire her father. She had money enough for this too. The desmen supplied her with Plenty of money. Mr. Reynes was a coal merchant on a large scale, exceedingly well off. He lived in Clapham Commons. The house was ugly and without any pretence to good looks. Tilly's stepmother met her in London, scolded her, shook her, and put her hat straight, and asked her why in the world was she coming home so soon. Tilly felt all the old wicked feelings rising in her breast when her stepmother began to harangue her. 
She immediately said that she was only wasting time at Desmond Town and wanted to work very hard indeed, so as to get to Alls one week before term began. The stepmother went on scolding. Tilly hardly listened. She was feeling wicked again, but she was thankful to be on dry land. They reached the big, luxuriously furnished, vulgar-looking house on Clapham Commons. Tilly suddenly felt herself very sick. Her stepmother was very kind to her when she was really sick. She allowed her to go to bed and sent Mary Ann, the house parlour maid, upstairs to look after her. Mary Ann was a favourite with Tilly and listened with mouth wide open, ears extended to the outmost and eyes that looked as though they were going to spring out of her head to Tilly's account of the awful storm at sea. She got the girl swiftly and quickly into bed and gave her a very little hot tea and dry toast. And then Tilly forgot all her miseries in sleep. It may have been her fall off the back of starlight or it may have been her fearful crossing. But whatever the reason, for a few days, Matilda Reynes was really ill. She was feverish and the doctor was sent for. During the whole of this time, she was attended by Mary Ann and very occasionally saw her stepmother, but never once her father. The doctor said she must have got a very severe shock of some sort. He told this to her father and also to her stepmother. When Reigns, the coal merchant, discovered that his daughter had received a severe shock and had come back home much sooner than she had expected to do so, he sat down and wrote a firm, cold letter to Mr. Desmond of Desmond Town. He said his child has been brought back to him at death's door and he wanted to know the reason for it. Had those wild Irish folk been playing pranks with his only child? He had no idea of addressing the Desmond as the. He had never heard of such a title and if he had, would not have used it. At last he received a reply in the neat firm handwriting of Fergus Desmond. Fergus told him of the letter not being addressed right, which naturally came to his possession. His father's title was The Desmond. He said he did not wish to complain of Matilda, Matilda Renus, but as her father wished to know the truth, he would tell him the truth. He then proceeded to give a graphic description of the thoroughbred starlight and of Tilly's conduct with regard to the ten pins. He wasted no words, but told the story just as it stood. Tilly was sent away by the Desmond. He could not possibly have such a wicked girl in his house. There was one person whom the Desmond set great store by, and that was his little granddaughter Margot, or the Pushkin, as he called her. Tilly was jealous of the Pushkin, and when she was not allowed to ride her horse, she stuck pins into the saddle, hoping thereby to injure, if not to kill, the little girl. 
this was the story. He had nothing more to say. He was sorry for Mr. Reese. Reese passed the letter across the table to his wife, who read it with pursed up lips and glittering pale blue eyes. Well, I must say it was a nasty thing to do, she said. It was, said Reese. We'll teach her what's that when she's better. She's better tonight, Robert. Mary Ann says she's nearly well. We'll wait for what's what until tomorrow, said Robert Reigns. The next day, Tilly was dressed. She had partaken of an excellent dinner prepared for her by Mary Ann and a bright little fire burnt in her room. She was feeling still weak and tired. Her father came in and looked at her. She shrank away from him in a sort of terror. Oh, you are afraid of me, are you? said the coal merchant. You have good cause to be. Read that. He passed Fergus Desmond's letter across the width of the little table and laid it in Tilly's hand. Take your time, he said. I'm in no hurry. He sat down deliberately and looked about him. Tilly could not see the letters at all at first from a clear sense of giddiness. She wished her father would go and leave her alone, but he sat quite calmly by the fire. You will just have the goodness to read that quietly, he said. I am in no manner of hurry. Take it in. Take it all in. By degrees, Tilly did take it in. She raised terrified, weak eyes to her father's face. Oh, Daddy, Daddy, she said, don't be angry with me. She's only a shopkeeper, and they make such a fuss of her. And I, I'm so weak and miserable. Perhaps ye are a bit, said Reens. I'm not going to be angry, but ye'll get your whipping all the same. Oh, Dad! Oh, Dad! Yes, child, there's no escape. Just hold on to the foot of the bed and bear your two arms and your shoulders. I don't hold with girls who want to injure other girls. Now, for every time you cry out, you'll get an extra stroke. So keep as quiet as you can. Tilly knew there was no help for it. Her father had brought a light keen-looking cane into the room with him. She had seen it when he had given her the letter to read. He slashed right, he slashed left. She kept back her screams. After a time, she was strangely still. She had fainted. Then Mary Ann came up and comforted and petted and put her back to bed and eased her sores by some very delicate ointment. No one else was in the least inclined to be kind. Two days afterwards, however, Reigns entered his daughter's bedroom. There isn't a making of a lady in you, Tilly, he said, and I'm not going to send you back to Arles anymore. There's a cheap school for your sort of girl close by, and you can help your stepmother when you are not working at school. And by the time you are 16... You'll be sitting in my coal office taking down orders for tons and tons of coal. No more arls or French or fine ladies for you. 
Bless my soul, you are a mean little thing. But now I want to get the truth of this. Tell me every blessed thing you know about that kind girl you call the little shopkeeper. Tilly did tell her story. She told it graphically, and even with her father's stern eyes fixed on her face, with a certain amount of correctness. She had bought hats and robes from La Petite Comtesse, and the old man, the Comte Saint Just, didn't know, and the old man, the Desmond in Ireland, didn't know. You are sure of your facts? said Reigns when she had stopped. Yes, I'm positive sure. That's all right then. I punished you, my girl, because you did a mean and cruel thing. But I'm not going to let that little shop girl get off scot-free. I can't talk parlez-vous, so I'm going straight to Ireland tonight, where I'll tell the entire story to those folks who think themselves so fine. You needn't begin your school life, my girl, till I come back. This has got to be seen through, and I'm the man for the job. Oh, oh, father, don't, don't, suddenly cried Tilly. I see her. She's in the room. She's looking at me. Why, you are raving mad, child. Who's in the room? Who's looking at you? La petite comtesse Margot. She was the only one who was always kind. Even when I stuck pins into the saddle, she was kind. And I saw her on board ship when I thought I was going to the bottom. Oh, but she's good. She's real good. And Monsieur la Comtesse, her grandpère, he mustn't be frightened. He loves her like her other grandfather loves her. Oh, father, let it be. Let it be. I'm going to Ireland tonight was Rain's remark. End of chapter 15